morning again, ZPC. How was that extra hour of sleep? Was it good? Jeez. Usually people are more excited after an hour, extra hour of sleep, but uh, apparently not you all. Well, I, for one, loved it. I thought it was great. Um, Hopefully you've had a good weekend. I just, I do want to, and Cynthia said something about this in the prayer, but I just want to say thank you again for last weekend. Uh, That trunk retreat was really uh, remarkable. Um, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people literally who came through these doors, and I'm going to guess, we didn't do an exact count, but I'm going to guess around two-thirds of those who were um, not uh, ZPCers who kind of came through and uh, so thank you so much for all of you who gave in so many different ways. Uh, it really is a remarkable experience and a real gift uh, for us to be able to do that. And then, of course, yes, the, uh, at the all-church, uh, the brunch as well was also amazing and a good, uh, a good testimony to our love uh, of Randy LaFoon. All right, so this week, uh, this passage is a, a little tougher than some of the other ones. Uh, I've found it a little bit tougher. Uh, it's less of a maybe of a preaching text for me, more of a teaching text. But um, So uh, let's, uh, let's see what exactly it is that Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37 have to say to us today. Luke writes this. Once, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered, The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Then he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go, do not set off in pursuit. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man." They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed all of them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. It will be like that on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone on the housetop who has belongings in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, anyone in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Those who try to make their life secure will lose it, but those who lose their life will keep it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding meal together. One will be taken and the other left. Then they asked him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is. There the eagles will gather. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do thank you for this privilege that we have to gather on this beautiful morning as sisters and brothers in Christ. We pray on this day, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and our ears to you, that we might hear a word that would sink deeply into our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our 
Redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, so if I was just kind of a John Doe uh, and was just reading through Scripture and I came to this particular passage, I would just keep going. Uh, Because I find it really a little bit confusing and not exactly like, you know, one of those that's the most stimulating to me. I'm not sure uh, that I would spend a whole lot of time kind of uh, focused upon it uh, for different reasons. One of them being because it clearly is kind of talking about the future and and what's going to happen in the future. And I've always kind of wrestled with those passages in scripture. There are people, there are Christians who love those kinds of passages and they will spend copious amounts of time kind of focusing on it. And I always notice that when they come in because they want to talk to me about it, they are always somewhat disappointed by me. This happens. I get, a lot of people uh, get disappointed with me at times, but and 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 it's because I don't quite, you know, have the same amount of energy to kind of try to figure everything out about what's going to happen at the end of time. That said, there is wisdom, of course, in our thinking some about that, and so I want us to really just try to digest what does this mean, and what does the kingdom of God and the coming kingdom of God? What exactly difference? does that make in our lives today? So here we are. We have some Pharisees, and the Pharisees are asking questions. So they come up to Jesus, and they want to know, when is the kingdom of God coming? Now, there are those who you know, are really kind of the Pharisee bashers, and there's a lot of us around who, who think, oh, well, you know, the Pharisees are just asking that question because they are trying to catch Jesus. There they go once again, just trying to destroy Jesus, get him in trouble in some way. And, and maybe that is exactly what they were doing. But there are others who would suggest, and I would probably fall in line with this, that, you know, the Pharisees, you know, this just comes right after the story. What was the story right before this? It's always humbling to know what people actually remember from just seven days ago. Yeah, the, 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 the ten lepers, right? Don't worry. Sometimes I can't even remember what I talked about. So the ten lepers, you know, being healed. And so the Pharisees have seen people be healed. The Pharisees have been a part of some of these miraculous things. The Pharisees have seen this Jesus who seems to care for the poor. So they may have been thinking, hey, maybe something is near. Maybe the kingdom of God is actually not nearly as far away as as we had perhaps thought. And so they're paying more attention. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come among you. What does that mean? Well, in, in many ways, likely what it means is that Jesus is looking at them and saying, hello, kingdom of God here, you're not seeing what is right in front of you, right? Much like my mother would do when I was growing up, I've never been able to see things or, you know, find things very well. And she would always say, you know, if it was a snake, it would have bit you, right? And this is kind of what Jesus is saying. You're, you're looking at me, Jesus, and you're asking the question, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And I am literally right here in front of you. In fact, Karl Barth says that if we want to understand when the New Testament is saying the kingdom of God, we could just simply echo the gospel of John that says that the word came down uh, as flesh and dwelt among us. That when you look at Jesus, when they were looking at Jesus, they were seeing the actual kingdom kingdom of God. Now, that said, that's not actually all there is because 
let's be honest, it was kind of difficult for these Pharisees because they may have seen Jesus, but do you know what else they saw? They saw a lot of bad things. They saw the Romans were continuing to oppress them. They saw poverty that was around. They saw death all the time. They saw brokenness and sin. And so you can understand why it is that perhaps they were still wondering, even as they looked at Jesus, well, what about the rest of this? And quite frankly, it's the same exact same thing that we, as followers of Jesus, if we are honest, may also kind of wrestle with and what gives us problems. If Jesus is the kingdom of God, if he embodies the kingdom of God, then why in the world is there still so much brokenness and sin and evil and death in our world? It doesn't seem to make sense. There must be something Else. And even Jesus seems to understand there is something else because much of this passage is about the more full advent of God's kingdom coming. What we would say is when Jesus returns again, as I say almost every Sunday in the benediction. And that is much of what this passage is about. When the fuller advent of the coming of the kingdom of God, what exactly is that going to be like? And how do we live Right now, when we believe that Jesus has come, and yet we also know that the full kingdom of God is not, uh, is not either here, or perhaps a better way, is not seen fully by us yet. So what are we supposed to do with what theologians say, the now but the not yet? I realize this week that a lot of times we talk about the now but the not yet, but maybe it doesn't completely make sense to many of us. You see, the now but not yet, here's the problem with the now, i.e. Jesus in the coming kingdom is death and resurrection, but the not yet, clearly the evil that's still in our world. The problem is, is that's very ambiguous. And most of us, including Christians, don't like ambiguity. We like clarity. And so Christians have really kind of wrestled with this ambiguity in many different ways. Ways. One of the ways that we've wrestled with it, there's a particular group who have said, okay, here's what the now but the not yet means. This will help us feel better. The now is this. I can have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus and me, I can have a relationship. That's what it means that he died and he rose for my sins. There's certainly truth to that. Now I feel better. The not yet is the whole rest of the world. It's all evil. And one day that will all be gone. And that's what makes me feel better. I have the, the now, but the not yet, right? I'm okay with Jesus and the rest of the world is going to go literally to hell in a handbasket. So, and, and, and actually, if you look at verse 21, where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you, it can be translated, the kingdom of God is within you. So you could actually make an argument for that. Many good arguments have been made for that. You could even continue to go on. And as you look at the rest of this passage and you see where one was, uh, two were in bed, one went up and the other one was out or stayed there. Uh, two women who are grinding mill, one, one left and one stayed there. And, and maybe that's what this means. Maybe this is about what is oftentimes called the rapture. And there's lots of complexities around that, including the fact that the one who may, who's left may actually be the righteous one. And it's the unrighteous who are being taken away. Uh, that's the argument that people like N.T. Wright and Ben Witherington would make is all these things, right? And we could go deeply into that, but you would look even more tired than you do already. <laughs> but now here's another fascinating thing about this, which is that commonly, and this is the tradition in which I was raised, so I know by and large of what I speak, that people who have this sense of it's me 
That's the now. The not yet is the rest of this earth that's soon just going to go up in a flame. Is that they also, we also tend to not be able to wait until that actually happens. We are excited. Leslie Newbigin says there's a particular sector of Christians who cannot wait for the world to end. And that makes sense. And so what this significant segment does of Christians uh, who have been highly, I would say, influenced. I know there's a lot of people around here. We have lots of different people. I'm not judging you. But who have been more highly influenced, I would say by Kirk Cameron and the Left Behind series than they have by Scripture. Don't laugh. Probably your neighbor's thinking that, Sharon. And certainly you can make arguments for these things, so I want you to hear me, but there is, it's fascinating the inordinate amount of time that is spent on trying to figure out exactly when that is going to happen, right? And I've shared some of this. I have some real baggage about this. You know, I can remember um, I got books on tape. Remember those books on tape when they would come like in a little, like a whole little like compartment, you pull it out and there's like 12 tapes in there and it's like, <laughs> this is amazing, right? And you would just kind of, you know, stick them into your, I know, I've lost some of you, but this, is, this was phenomenal. So I would listen to these prophecies, right? Because I got them at this church I was at in Seattle and they, they, they knew exactly. I mean, what's great. See, remember, we don't like ambiguity. So when someone stands up and says, I have this figured out, we want to listen. And they would say, I can tell you everything. You know what's happening right now? That's Israel. Right? You see this symbol right here? Uh, 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 that stands for the Soviet Union. This was a long time ago. That stands for the Soviet Union. And you see that eagle? You know what that represents? The good old US of A! It's always great how we're always the heroes in these kind of interpretations, right? We love being heroes. So there would be all this sense of clarity, right? And, 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 and it wasn't just kind of the more kind of Pentecostal or what we would call a dispensational group that was doing this. There's even a whole denomination, I'm not going to throw them under the bus, who thought for sure they knew that Jesus was coming back in 1844. And when Jesus didn't come back in 1844, they had some explaining to do. But the denomination is still here. It's still around. They pivoted. You guys can look it up, but don't. We all make mistakes. And one of the things that's very fascinating to me is that we don't seem, those of us who kind of get caught up in that, we don't seem to see how Jesus so clearly tells us that you will not know when it's going to be. And so I'm always fascinated, right? In fact, in our passage today, you know, it, there's this, it, it's very obvious because he says, you know, look, uh, you will know it will be like lightning that flashes across the skies. There will be no question. You don't need to wonder. You don't need to spend time trying to say, well, I want to figure out exactly what it is. No, no, no. He says, it will smack you in the face, Right, it's kind of like when uh, right before we had our first uh, uh, daughter, um, you know, I was kind of nervous leading up to that because I was like, I don't know, am I going to know what to do, and am I really going to love this kid? I didn't know it was going to be a girl yet, but am I really going to love this kid? And I, because I see my friends and they have these kids, and it looks like their life is miserable, right? I mean, they're just, you know, they don't get sleep, they're always changing. So I had all this fear, right? I'm, am I going to like this? Is, you know, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, then you know what? She was born, and you're like, oh, and you're like, ah. Oh. And immediately, you know, you have this love and you know how to hold them in this sense. And, and everything kind of just comes together. And it's like, why did I waste all this time? Because when that child come, everything would come together. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Like, look, why are you spending all this time trying to figure out all the details? Here's the thing that you will just, you will know. There will be no question. You will know when the kingdom of God has come in all of its fullness. You will know like the lightning flashing across the sky. Now, for those of you who have spent the last like seven or eight minutes being like, man, what is he talking about? 
this is lame. Uh, you didn't grow up in a church like that. And so you're like, who would even think something like that? That's fine. You can, you know, cast aspersion because this next part is for you. Because Jesus doesn't just talk to those people who are concerned about, you know, when exactly Jesus is going to come and, or when the kingdom of God is going to come and what it's going to look like. No, 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 no. He also talks to others, perhaps the rest of us. And how do we deal with the ambiguity between the now but the not yet? Well, the great way that we tend to deal with that ambiguity is by not thinking about it at all. This is, again, what Leslie Newbigin says. This is the second temptation that those of us in the church have, which is, especially, he says, this is for comfortably established churches, that they oftentimes have the temptation of the lazy servant who says, my master is not coming back, and I can do what I want with his household. You see, the other concern that we have is for those of us who never think about the fullness of the coming kingdom of God, of Jesus returning in any ways. And so we fill ourselves with what is going on in our world. This is what Jesus is saying. He brings up two Old Testament stories, the story of Noah, the story of, uh, of Sodom. And the reason why he brings them up in this case, because it says it very explicitly, is that Jesus says, you know what they were doing? Like before these places were destroyed, do you know what they were doing? They were eating and drinking and marrying and buying and selling and planting and building. They were just living their lives to the fullest. They were just thinking what has always been will always be. They weren't thinking about anything else. They were just so caught up in what was going on in their daily lives. They were so caught up in driving this way and that and working and going on vacations and doing all of these things, right? They were so caught up in that that they never even thought that any of this would come to an end at all. They're at sleep at the wheel, basically, and were surprised when everything changed. Now, I want to find a parallel, or I want to suggest there's a parallel between this and what we said last week, which was when we talked about death, because I think it's pretty much the same thing, which is that we get so caught up in what's going on day to day, we don't want to think about the fact that what has always been, i.e. your heart beating, will not always be. And so we tend to not think about death and it changes how we actually live today. Now, this happens with some regularity. It's very one of the annoying things about being a preacher, which is that almost always after a Sunday, like the next day on Monday or Tuesday, you'll come across something that you'll be like, oh, I could have totally used this yesterday, right? And that happened this week. And so I'm going to, but I'm, I'm like, man, I'm not letting this sermonic gold go by its wayside. I'm going to make you guys listen to this. It was this article that I stumbled upon in the Atlantic. It was brought up because of Halloween and thinking about death. Uh, and so I'm going to make the similarity, I think, because I think there is one between death and this understanding or thinking about the coming kingdom of God. And so, uh, and so the author of this particular article, she's uh, writing, she's a lot of times she's kind of quoting this other book that she had read. But I just want us to hear this. And if you weren't here last week, and maybe it'll be helpful for what we talked about last week. Here's what uh, the article says. In her exploration of American dying, the good death, the author, Ann Newman, writes, what's different today is that our experience of death is a simu, simu, ah! simulacrum. I even looked it up. I have no idea what that meant. It's like a bad copy. I, I've never heard of it. Okay, good. Uh, a myth, a romance, where our loved one gives us a last meaningful look then slips into a long sleep. Part of the reason we don't know how people die is that we no longer see it up close. We modern Americans tend to be comfortably removed from death. In other words, by the professionalization of care for the dying. 
Newman points out that 80% of Americans die now in facilities such as hospices, hospitals, and nursing homes. In this context, death recedes into an abstraction, something distant and anesthetized, devoid of the immediate experience of mortality. Such estrangement from death leaves people bewildered and unprepared for the realities of dying, Newman writes. But it also robs us of a certain clarity that the memento mori, and that just means you will one day die, basically, in Latin, um, with their grim preoccupations grasped very well. Life is short and death is final and all mortal glory is fleeting. We all labor under a death sentence. The fact of death ought to induce intentionality in our ways of living. Okay? Now let me say this. We do not believe that death is final. That said... What she's saying is the sense that because of the fact that if we were more familiar, if we, as I said last week, pondered our death, then we would begin to live differently today with more intentionality, with more clarity. In the same way, those of us who get caught up in the day-to-day and we think that what we see around us is all that there is, and because we're so busy and we're doing this thing and that, that how do we have any time to think of anything different? What Jesus is saying is, no, don't just go around marrying and buying and selling and building and farming doing all these things, you must also be paying attention to the reality that there is another kingdom, that there is a separate kingdom, and it will soon come in all of its fullness, and are you paying attention to it? And if you genuinely believe that, how would it change how you are living today? We don't like living in the tension of the now, but the not yet, but this is exactly the tension to which Jesus calls us to. So the question then is, what does that actually look like? Let me give you one analogy. I found this somewhat helpful. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, of what now but not yet actually looks like. The one analogy that gets brought up is it's a bit like World War II. You had D-Day. You remember D-Day? You have Normandy. And Normandy, after Normandy, the Germans were defeated there on the uh, beaches uh, on Omaha Beach and all the other beaches, and they were defeated. And so what some would say is that the war was actually over at that point. It was really, that was pretty much, that, that broke the camel's back. But there was still, of course, many other battles that happened. There were still evil. There was still death and destruction that would go between then and when the peace treaty was finally signed, right? So the war was over, but there were still other battles to occur, right? So this is the now, but the not yet. So then how do we live in that tension between the now and the not yet? As I was thinking about this, I came across Shirley Guthrie, who's a Presbyterian theologian. I think he's actually passed away now. And he said, look, there are three Three characteristics, and this is what I want us to hear today. Otherwise, now but not yet just becomes theological mumbo-jumbo and is not that helpful. If we want to live into this tension, what does that actually look like? Here's number one. He says this, we will be a people who take evil seriously. In other words, for those of us who live in the not yet, we realize that not yet means that there is still an ample amount of evil that is around us. And sometimes we Christians are guilty of trying to just kind of distract people from the reality of evil and sin 
and brokenness. But the truth, of course, is, is that this is exactly what this world is like. Jesus himself said, you have to go to the cross. In this passage, I have to go to the cross to suffering. What is Jesus continually calling us to do? It is to take up our cross, to take up our willingness to suffer alongside of people. I'm not going to keep bringing up Randy LaFoon. This may be the last week for a while. But I want to bring up, I want to just kind of quickly bring up his funeral once again, because I know it was a celebration and it was a great celebration. But here's one of the things that I said in that sermon that I want us to really make sure that we pay attention to, which is that this, that his death um, hurts in a theological way, hurts like hell. Because, of course, this is exactly from whence it comes. This sense of brokenness and pain and suffering. And when you're with somebody who is so wonderful, when they are not there, then it is a remarkable amount of pain. And when you, and you may have done this, so don't you know, have grace for yourself, but when we say things, it seems to me, you can disagree, but when we say things like, well, you know what, God must have needed him more than we do. It's a way of trying to move past the pain without actually living into it. You see, when we take evil seriously, what that frees us to do as Christians is it frees us. Because again, a lot of times we just want to be like, oh, don't worry, there's resurrection. Oh, I'll be resurrection. No, 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 no. Don't even think about the pain. No, no, no. What this allows us to do is to actually be present, to be with. Remember what we always talk about in Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Not because, because death isn't real. No, no, no. Because God is with us. And as followers of Jesus, we play a role in being with people in their pain. And if we think we cannot take evil seriously, then rather than being with people, we will try to distract them. And we are the people who are with them in the midst of the reality of evil and brokenness and sin. This is a part of our call for those who live in the now, but the not yet. It is not to make light of the not yet. It is to say, yes, evil is real, and we are going to be here with you in the very midst of that evil. But then secondly, Guthrie says, we must not take evil more seriously than we do God. I love that line. We must not take evil more seriously than we do God. You see, because this gives voice to the fact that while evil is incredibly real, it will not overcome us. Here's what else Guthrie writes. He says this, no matter how hopeless the situation may seem, Christians know of a power at work here and now greater than the power of evil. A power that keeps breaking into our godless and God-forsaken world to heal old wounds, make new beginnings. And if only now and then, here and there, give us a glimpse of the final victory of God's compassion and justice that are on the way. See, here's what, here's what happens. Let me just go back real briefly. When you don't understand the real power of evil, what I see Christians sometimes do is they think, well, we can just overcome all evil. And they work, and they work, and they work, and when they are unsuccessful, they grow cynical and tired. But when you know that at the end of the day, you serve a God, a God, not you, but a God who can overpower evil. Then all of a sudden we begin to look at the right place, which is God. And all of a sudden then we become a people, not who are distracted from evil, but a people who are even in the midst of evil, as we said last week, in the midst of darkness, we can see glimpses and the inbreaking of the kingdom of 
God. This is this great gift. We are not surprised by evil, but we are also not overcome by it. Living in the now but not yet allows us to be realistic without becoming cynical, to be honest without being overwhelmed, to be fully human because we know that we serve an unwavering God. So we know that there is evil. We do not take evil more seriously than we take God. And then thirdly, that's what allows us to do this. We are a people then who fight against evil. What does that mean? It means this. We are invited then to participate in God's coming kingdom by what we do. Here's what N.T. Wright says. N.T. Wright says this. What you do in the present by painting Preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are a part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. What does this mean? What it means is that what we are doing here and now is making an impact on what we call this tapestry of God's kingdom. Remember, we've we've been bringing up this tapestry for a while. I think Brendan, when he preached, um, even made fun of me for this. And so we have this tapestry of God's kingdom. And Remember one of the things that we said is that, is that if this is where we are, one of the great things to do is just to remember, how did you get here? Like, who is it that told you first about Jesus? Or who is it that first told you about ZPC? What did that, what did that look like? Remembering that someone did that, and because of that, it changed your, it changed the kingdom of God in a sense. It changed where you are and it changed how you live and it changed how you see the world and all of those things, right? But here's the great gift is that all of us have opportunities to be able to then participate in these incredibly small ways oftentimes, right? What did it say? By sewing, by painting, by writing a poem, by, uh, uh, by playing music, uh, by preaching or teaching, by inviting, by being hospitable, uh, by 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 any of these kind of small acts. Here's the thing. When you think it's all up to you, when you do these small acts, if you don't bear any fruit, you will stop doing them. But when you begin to see how what you're doing, and you may not even know, you may never know the fruit of these things, that all of a sudden you begin to see that whatever you're doing is a part of something that is so much Larger, You know, the, the story's told, I don't know if it's real or not, because usually when these things are told, I roll my eyes and say, is that really true? But you've probably heard it. It's a Christopher Wren, uh, right? Christopher Wren, that's not, the, uh, that's not the Winnie the Pooh guy, right? What, that's Christopher uh, Robin. Yeah, yeah, no, Christopher Wren. I get those confused. Christopher Wren, art, great architect, right? Uh, back in, in England. And so the story is told uh, that as he was kind of rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral that had burned down, that he comes across some bricklayers, and he comes across three of them, right? And the very first bricklayer comes across, he says, what are you doing? And the guy says, well, I'm laying bricks. I'm putting bricks on top of each other. He says, okay, great. Yep, that's what you're supposed to be doing. He comes to the second one. He says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm building a wall. And he says, okay, all right, well, that's good. That's what you're supposed to be doing. He comes to the third bricklayer, and he says, what are you doing? doing? And the third bricklayer says, I am building a cathedral. 
And see, this is exactly the difference, it seems to me, between those of us who are just kind of doing things and those of us who realize that what we are doing is, is a part of something that is much larger. Those who live in the sense of the now but the not yet are those who realize that these little things that they are doing are a part of this larger, beautiful kingdom of God. You know, uh, we had our inquirers this past week, and it was kind of fun. Uh, there was a couple there, and uh, I don't know how old they are now, maybe in their late 20s or something. I can't remember. But they met Right? They met here when they were uh, 15 and 17, I think it was, when they did a high school mission trip here, right? That's how they met each other. Now, now, now those leaders who thought about that, like they, weren't, they didn't have these mission trips in order to you know, get people to get married. Brendan Saget, that's not why we do these things as having a 14-year-old right now. I'll be honest, I was made a little nervous by this story. But that said, right, like they wouldn't have thought of anything about this, right? But by simply saying, hey, we're going to go do mission, and you think, oh, okay, that's what we're going to go do. And you go, and they do that. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that, right, while, while they were just doing mission, these two people met, right? And eventually, they would become married, right? And now they've kind of made their way back to ZPC. And there's like these little things that you do, these little notes of, of invitation that we oftentimes hear, right? These little things like trunk or treat. One of the people come to ZPC now. The first time she was here was several years ago for Trunk or Treat. That's why she came, because of Trunk or Treat. It was not because of Jesus, per se. It was because of Trunk or Treat, right? And, and all of a sudden, right, then she, she meets them. When we begin to see that these little things that we are doing, right, when you sing a song, you are joining a choir in the heavens. And one day you will look back and you will be able to see how this was a part of building for the kingdom of God. When you watch one of our children, when you go back there and you help with our next gen, when you're here as a part of uh, your cooking maybe for second half adventurers, right? When you're pushing somebody uh, in a wheelchair who needs that, all of you, when you are saying a prayer, all of you have an opportunity to be a part of something much larger than what you understand. And when we live in that now but not yet, we realize that everything that we are doing is a part of this larger coming kingdom of God. God. And so the question is, do we want to live into that? This week, I told you last week that I had uh, gotten this liturgy, the liturgy of walking that I did last week, and several of you asked me about where I got that from, and um, from one of our covenant children, right? Which again, this is great testimony that you never know, right? This was a, a young lady who kind of, you know, grew up in the church that people poured into. Christians are still pouring into her even now. And she sent me that liturgy. And so this week she sent me another liturgy and I'm not gonna put up every liturgy that she sends me, but I did find it remarkably poignant for today. And it's actually how I wanna end this sermon. It's a little bit lengthy, um, but I want you just to hear this and to see if you, if you catch any glimpses. This is called a liturgy for joy, but if you catch any glimpses of exactly what it is that the scripture is saying and what we've been talking about this morning. So let's just slowly kind of read this liturgy. When the world expects sadness, help us, creator of light, to look for pockets of joy. When the world is overwhelmed by darkness, give us eyes to see little delights. When the world is caught up in sensationalism, help us speak of the hidden wonders we've discovered, holding them up for others to see. This sacred stillness of the early morning, a quiet moment in the sun, 
Small children laughing on scooters, trees bursting into bloom, and lilies opening at the corner bodega. These small joys reveal the truth of the world we live in. No, there is not peace everywhere, and all pain has not been removed. But there are still people returning home, voices that pray, moments of forgiveness, Signs of hope. We do not wait until all is well to celebrate the glimpses of your kingdom at hand. Let us not deny sadness, but transform it into fertile soil for joy. Let us not choose darkness, but choose to live in the light. Cynics seek darkness wherever they go, but joy is the mark of the people of God. Help us discipline ourselves to choose joy, for the reward is joy itself. Help us renew our minds until they default to joy and not fear, for there is so much to frighten us. Help us believe that the light can be trusted, for there is so much darkness to mislead us. Jesus, you are both the man of sorrows and the man of complete joy. Help us to hold both sorrow and joy in the ways you have shown us. And help us to remain in your love so that your joy may be in us and our joy may be complete. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. And just a moment for us just to kind of be still and be quiet. To know, Lord, that so often we live lives, Lord, where we are so perhaps either preoccupied by when is it that this will all be over or preoccupied with our day-to-day, Lord, that we have lost a sense of purpose and meaning and urgency for you and for your kingdom. And so we pray, Lord, that on this day, that you would help us to see you. Help us, Lord, to not deflect or be distracted against the reality of evil in our own world, and yet to take you more seriously than we do all of that evil. Help us to see how we are building this cathedral, this beautiful coming kingdom of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.